Hey readers, you're listening to the Positron Chicago podcast, episode four. I'm Jake Casella. And I'm Michael John. Here at Positron Chicago, we talk about science fiction and fantasy books, weird books, sometimes some horror, sometimes some steampunk, sometimes things that aren't books, but usually books, and lots of fandom around the Chicago area. Positron episode four, A New Hope. Today we're <laughs> going to talk about Hugo nominations in the novel category, and specifically 2017 Hugos. Uh, short lists are out. We've raved about them already. We're going to talk about them substantively today. There's some great local theater going on that we're going to clue you in on. And also, uh, we're really excited about a couple of events coming up. Jake? Yeah, yeah BikeCon and WisCon are pretty exciting. They're coming up in like three days, four days? That's right. And I believe that we're getting this really foul Chicago weather out of our system before we begin our, our trek on bicycle con hopefully they'll be out of tornadoes by the time we're in the middle of wisconsin so we'll see yeah i would fear for our lives if we were leaving today okay so jake <clears throat> tell me a little bit about what you're reading what you have been reading in the last month um well i've been been reading a lot of these hugo noms um something that i have been doing uh there's a cool thread on Twitter a little while ago about, um, I can't remember who started initially, but Cabbages and Kings, which was that other formerly Chicago-based uh, science fiction podcast, Right. they had reposted this question basically asking for space opera written by non-cishet white men. Oh, my goodness. What yeah, space yeah. operas out there. And that wound up, um, there were like three or four or five of us wound up kind of twisting that into a sub-thread just all about how awesome C.J. Cherry is. Um, so I was going back through and rereading a couple of hers, specifically Rim Runners, which I don't think a lot of people know. It's not one of her big award-winning ones, and it's not been ebook uh, re-released yet, no. which is kind of a bummer. But Well, uh, this sounds like a great topic for a future podcast, Jake. Uh, either Space Opera or C.J. Sherry or, or possibly how the, they intersect. Yeah, I really need to find some, some more people who are really into Cherry because they're out there. It's just like we never <laughs> connect. But yeah, really fantastic read. It was interesting to return to. It's from early 80s. And yeah, just fantastic. But otherwise, um, yeah, lots and lots going on. What, what have you been reading? Anything... Well, Jake, I've been catching up on Sisyon Lu. Right. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. 1,600 pages. I somehow missed Three Body when it, on its release. Okay. And, um, and as, as will be apparent, we're uh, taking a closer look at his third novel in uh, his Three Body Universe trilogy. Uh, and so I had some uh, backlog of uh, Yeah, it's a chunk of change. To, <laughs> yeah. To so, catch up on. So yeah. that's that's uh, that and the other uh, Hugo novels uh, for for review this episode have uh, really kept me busy. Okay. As, as my family, my suffering wife and children would attest to, I think, in, in the last month or so. Yeah, nice. Cool. Let's take a look at the event, events calendar now, Jake. Uh, Chelsea from Unreal has a list of things that might interest you in the Chicago area. Hey, howdy, hey. This is Chelsea Fidiment, host of Unreal Open Mic, here with the scoop on some upcoming events. We've got something for everybody, so buckle in. Feminist and Social Justice-Centered Science Fiction Convention, WizCon, returns to Madison, Wisconsin for its 41st outing, running from May 26th through the 29th. 
China Mieville won't quite be talking genre, but you may still want to catch him discussing his newest book, October, The Story of the Russian Revolution, at University Church on May 27th and the Seminary Co-op Bookstore on May 28th, both located in Hyde Park. On June 8th, Anderson's Bookshop in Naperville hosts the Epic Reads Tour, featuring YA authors Joel Charbonneau, Kimberly McCrate, Julie Murphy, and Evelyn Skye. On June 10th and 11th, Cake, the Chicago Alternative Comics Expo, returns to Lakeview Center on Halstead, boasting a slew of independent comics artists, zine creators, and printmakers from across the country, the internet, and the world. Also June 10th and 11th is the annual Printer's Row Lit Fest, an outdoor literary festival that gathers hundreds of authors and booksellers along Chicago's storied Printer's Row in the South Loop. Among many on- and off-site points of interest for the speculative fiction reader at the fest, you can catch Cory Doctorow in conversation with Chicago author Mary Robinette Kowal on Sunday morning at the Jones College Prep South Auditorium. If live fiction's more your thing, be sure to check out these upcoming genre-friendly reading and performance series. Tuesday Funk on June 6th at the Hopleaf in Andersonville, the Gumbo Fiction Salon on June 8th at the Galway Arms in Lincoln Park, Bad Grammar Theater on June 16th at Volumes Book Cafe in Wicker Park, Strange or Die on June 19th, also at Volumes in Wicker Park, and of course, Unreal, a fiction-focused experimental open mic on June 20th, when we'll celebrate our one-year anniversary, at Shuba's in Lakeview. Details on these events and many more at PositronChicago.com, plus miscellaneous events as they come up via Positron's Facebook page. That's a lot of cool things coming up, Jake. Yeah, I'm pretty pumped about it. Um, Printers Row is going to be a lot of fun this year. Um, cake's always fun. Um, but I'm particularly pumped about WizCon. It's yeah, coming. it is nigh. It is coming right up on us. I mean, it's like tomorrow, it feels like to me. Actually, by the time this podcast comes out, it will almost be tomorrow. So. Two great uh, featured guests. We've got Amal Al-Motar, mm-hmm. and we've got Kelly Sue DeConnick. And yeah. um, at Think Galactic, we just read uh, some material from my, both of those yeah. uh, artists and authors. And um, it's uh, it's going to be a really, really great slate. Of, their programming is out. They've yeah. published it, and it, it just looks fantastic. Yeah. I always really enjoy the Guest of Honor speeches, mm-hmm. and I'm really curious to hear El Motar because I just have found her very insightful, everything I've read by her, so I'm curious to see what she says. And I'm especially curious about DeConnick because I feel like with a, a person who works in comics, you don't get them speaking to you as directly as much. Um, but she seems like someone who has a lot to say, so I'm, I'm curious to say, hear that, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's a good list of paneling. Um, I'm on... Are you on any paneling this year? No, I'm not. No. Not, not this year. I'm taking That's a break. Cool. But... Um, but you've got, you're on a couple, aren't you, Jake? Yeah, I'm I'm moderating one uh, and uh, which is about the canon, which I'm really interested about because I'm really curious on like canon questions and how do we like revise what's wrong with the canon and how exclusionary they are, but how do we also find like touchstones, basically? Maybe like canon is the wrong word for it, but I I feel like if you don't have some kind of list of works that are kind of like central and kind of like not like mandatory, but they're what you direct people towards, so a, a community tends to know them and touch on them. I think that really just helps with communication, you know? Like, we've been talking a lot about gender in books, and I think if you haven't read The Left Hand of Darkness, it's kind of hard to talk about, like, what, what gender's been doing in science fiction. It's kind of one of those touchstone things. Yeah, there needs to be a foundation of kind yeah. of, like, 
um, I guess, foundational works that that uh, more recent, uh, you know, excellent examples can build upon. Yeah, so I'm curious to see how that goes. I'm just moderating it, but I'm I'm really interested in what people have to say. And then I'm on a panel about um, tropes in science fiction across different media. And then I'm on one that's really interesting sounding. I don't know what's going to happen with it about moral ambiguity in science fiction. Um, when, as you know, ethical philosophy and science fiction is kind of my academic background. So, canon tropes and moral ambiguity, Jake. I think that pretty much. Yeah. That's a, that's you've you've bitten off quite a, quite a lot there for your panels, yeah. and I, I think you're up to the task. So I'm pumped for that. Yeah. And we're gonna have a Think Galactic party, um, which should be fun, and possibly a Think Galactic after party, which will be even more fun. <laughs> um, so yeah, right. we'll see about that. Yeah. But Michael, be fun. you are. Captain, vice chair, your proconsul, you're the hive mind. That's right. I'm actually, I am actually Bicycle John. Bicycle John, yes. At Bicycle Con. Yes. And, uh, and yeah, Bicycle Con is our, what will probably be annual, uh, excursion from Chicago to, uh, Madison. Pending tornadoes. Right. Um, <laughs> will be right. Recurring right. event. Yeah. And I know we're refreshing our, uh, our weather apps so like uh, by a minute, oh, by the minute yeah. uh, here just to, um, hopefully we're going to be, uh, you know, have some safe, uh, sunny weather to get us to Madison safely. We've got some great stops between here and there. We've got breweries, cheese co-ops, um, some great restaurants and uh, a farm stay uh, and there are four uh, lucky members uh, actually I think we're up to five I think we're to five you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, that will be uh, sort of like taking advantage of what um, you know rural Wisconsin and Illinois have uh, to offer between uh, here and Madison yeah um, listeners if you are a cyclist and you also like science fiction next year think about getting a hold of us um, this is hopefully a growing thing I'm looking forward to just getting out in the country and putting some miles on. And Final progress report will be out to members soon. And uh, I think that you could probably expect to see a trip summary on uh, Positron. Yeah, hopefully we can do some recaps with some, some pictures out there. Right. So it'll be nice. Yeah, and some muscular Jake Casella bod pictures. Yeah, uh, that's, yeah, that's that's a highlight. That's Every Positron episode has that secretly. Hit Photoshop for that oh, one. Oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> Cool. So we got Bicon, we got Wiscon coming up. Um, Michael, you just saw uh, the Lifeline production of A Wrinkle in Time, right? Right. I, yeah. I Actually, it, it's going on about a month ago. I, I failed to mention it during our last podcast, but this was a tremendous production. Um, I'm pretty sure that it's still running for a couple more weeks. Okay. Uh, this is up in Rogers Park, um, you know, a, a minimalist uh, production. But they they have uh, a sort of an element of uh, stage gymnastics that oh, really? sort of summarizes the tesseract portions okay. of uh, the, cool. if you remember the Engel um, uh, you know prose that, mm-hmm. and and ideas of the tesseract and how they get for, uh, like the different dimensions and things yeah, like that. sort of yeah. like wormhole travel from okay. one one uh, planet to another oh, cool. uh, and it's it's actually really really interesting is that a kid focused show or just more like kind of kid friendly show or uh definitely kid friendly uh my children enjoyed uh and um you know this is the same company that did city in the city right. a couple years back yeah uh they've they're they do a lot of great uh, genre productions, and the production value is really top-notch. Cool. And the venue is also amazing. Yeah. It's a brick uh, building. Um, 
it's uh, it really is top notch. I also uh, saw um, speaking of kids theater, I saw that um, Edge of Orion is doing. I think it's a remix. I feel like they did this before, but I'm not positive. They're doing a stage adaptation of Terry Pratchett oh, uh, doing man, Guards. Fantastic. Guards. Yeah, um, which I think Guards is like probably the funnest intro. Uh, great uh, to, for the kids. At least one thread of those. So yeah, oh, man. that's going on. I'm not sure when that starts. It starts this summer. I'll put the links up on the site. So awesome. Yeah. And uh, Jake, I couldn't help but notice you've you've been back to Otherworld. Yeah. Um. I well, I was at Edge of Orion, which has a lot of people from Otherworld in it. Did the staging of Illyria, um, which is this really interesting Shakespeare mashup thing that I talked about on the site a little bit. Really fantastic. I love Shakespeare a lot, and it was well done. And then uh, I've got two more shows coming up this weekend, which I'm, uh, I'm going to give you a little spiel about right now. The new Millennium Theater show, The Incredible Hank, is a romping, spoofy superhero tale. In the hero-saturated city of San Diego, Hank's goal of living out his life as a regular office worker, despite his amazing strength, is derailed when supervillains attack his building. Hank, you're a super? What? No. What? Yes. <laughs> no, no, not. Yes, you are. You just threw that ice guy across the room and you just defenestrated the Alpine Lion. I, I what? It means you chucked him out of a window. I saw it. <laughs> This is a goofy, high-energy, over-the-top production. If a fast-forward stage version of Dr. Horrible or The Tick sounds like a good idea to you, you should definitely check this out. It's playing at the Royal George Theater until June 24th. The jokes are non-stop, there's some really good use of simple puppetry and AV, and the audience was cracking up the entire time. <laughs> now it's time for you to also, also, hey, not a sidekick, okay? Okay. <laughs> I'm my own... I'd also highly recommend that speculative fiction lovers in Chicago check out Otherworld Theater's new production, The Rogue Aviator. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As Major General of the Fighting Aces, it is my honor and great pleasure to welcome you as new citizens to the city of Olympus. Set in an alternate history 1930s, The Rogue Aviator is a dieselpunk story with flying cities, sky pirates, and a large ensemble cast. As I'm coming to expect from Otherworld, the play uses a variety of techniques to transport the audience elsewhere, including some pretty cool tech and set decisions to bring the world to life. You're in my sights, flying ace, and you are through. Do you hear me? Through! <laughs> Lots and lots to recommend here. Lavish world building, a script with some interesting subtleties, good stage combat, and some memorable characters and performances. Oh, and there's a nice retelling of the Sword of Damocles, which is always a plus. The Rogue Aviator will be playing at the new Strawdog Theater in Ravenswood until June 10th. Oh, very good. <gasps> Gotta hand it to you. And you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Maybe we ought to take a break. Agreed. <laughs> Swords up on three. Five, one, two, three. Oh. 
Stars, Jake, what a great list of shows. Set your engines to fun, Michael. <laughs> Strap yourself in. <laughs> yeah, you should go check them out. Uh, they're both fun shows. All right, Jake, we're going to get into the main part of our show. We're going to talk about the Hugos. Uh, but first, I think it's necessary that we sort of outline the Hugo process and especially voting uh, for people that are listening that uh, have the privilege of voting. Yeah. Also, um, listeners, if you're not familiar with the Hugos, first stuff, that's totally fine. Um, but what the Hugos are is they're considered the biggest award in science fiction fandom. So it's been going for quite a while. And the awards are given not by a jury, but by the members of the Worldcon, either the people who actually go to the con or supporting members who pay less money, don't necessarily actually travel there, but they still get voting privileges. That's right, Jake. And we've actually gone through the nomination process, which is also a popular vote. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, uh, submitted uh, by any member of the World Science Fiction Convention. Uh, and we've got what uh, should be the six or five or six in each of the categories, most interesting works. Right. Uh, and today we're going to be mostly concerned with the novel category. I think in a lot of ways, the nominating process is kind of more critical because I feel like by the time you get to five or six works that lots of people have voted on, it's kind of been filtered in. You kind of know like, okay, these are the five or six works that were really interesting last year. Um, it's a nice short list just to have, which is what we're going to be talking about today. That's but, right, Jake. And actually, what uh, what that alludes to is that often there are five or four or five great science fiction works in that short list. Yeah, there's often one or two fantasy works that uh, that have the opportunity to kind of steal science fiction's biggest. I award. am glaring at you right now, readers. You can't see this, but what I want is a sound effect that will be like wah, wah, strict wah. genre definition <laughs> alert. Strict genre <laughs> definition alert. Save it for the World Fantasy Award. No, okay. okay, see, ah, we're, this is we're gonna have to save this because it's take too long. <laughs> but so the Hugo nomination process is pretty interesting. Anyone who is an attending Worldcon member at either. This year or the previous year gets to nominate and vote. And the nominating process has some really weird, interesting, invisible math connected to it now that helped prevent some of these block vote problems we've been seeing where relatively small groups of uh, voters were able to organize and kind of completely dominate some of the categories, which we saw a couple times. Really weird, unexpected. They weren't breaking any rules, but they were kind of breaking the spirit. They've kind of fixed that, it looks like, at least this year. Um, That's right, Jake. And actually, it's really important to remember that the that it is possible to vote a no award uh, for any given category in the Hugos. Right. Um, if it's probably a good vote, uh, if you feel that there's an unworthy or a set of unworthy works in a category, uh, to place the no award category just above those. Yeah. So one of the things that the Hugo Award is kind of known for and it's become kind of important in the last few years is if the voters as a whole decide that there isn't something in a category that can kind of like bear the mantle of the Hugo and stand up to the kind of works that have got it before the no award votes actually a good thing. So if the Hugos give out a bunch of no awards in a given year, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's this kind of positive gatekeeping thing of like, we want to keep this award meaningful and if for whatever reason, there could be lots of weird reasons, there's nothing in that particularly category that's kind of up to snuff that year, the no award's a, a totally fine vote. And that's right, Jake. In 2016, had uh, several categories yeah. won by no award. Yeah, I think 2015 too, right? I, uh, yeah, a yeah, couple. A couple, um, yeah. We're going to take a quick break. 
And then we're going to come back. We're going to go through these six novels. I'm going to go ahead and say, I think they're all fairly wonderful novels. There's some we're probably going to argue about a little bit. It's a great year, Jake. It's a, it's a great year. Great so year to be at we're gonna We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Positron Chicago, the podcast. We're going to get into it now. We're going to start talking about the novels that make up the 2017 uh, Hugo novel category. Yeah, so it's a really cool looking list. We have talked about some of these on the podcast. We've talked about some of these at our book clubs. Um, it's a pretty exciting list. And we're just going to go down this list, give you some quick thoughts on what we're thinking about them, vis-a-vis them possibly winning the highest award that science fiction has to offer. That's right, Jake. And there's an obvious start point in this list for, because uh, the it was one also, novel was our... It was an obvious start point for us. <laughs> yeah. Podcast, That's right. So. It sort of inspired me to kind of join Positron and and uh, and um, dedicate my life to the, the Positron podcast. Yeah, uh, it's a great work, and uh, tell us a, a couple of basic things about it. So yeah, so that novel is "Too Like the Lightning" by Ada Palmer. It's her first novel. She's a Chicago author. It is a twenty fourth century, twenty fifth century uh, quasi utopia with flying cars, with a world that supposedly lacks gender and nations with geographical boundaries. It has some supernatural elements in it. It has a very interesting narrator. We loved it. We talked about it. We're going to talk about it quickly here. Michael, what do you think about this? I love this novel, Jake. Uh, that that would be obvious to anyone who listened to the first podcast. Um, I love the fact that the kinks in here have a 25th century uh, world that is fixated with the 17th century. I, I love the uh, supernatural element that is thrown into this Enlightenment era uh, sort of like rationalistic world. I, I love the style uh, that Palmer employs. I love the academics. I love just about everything there is about this novel. It is really dense. It's a novel of ideas. I don't think I've seen a novel quite this idea-focused since maybe Anathem. Uh, by Neil Stevenson. Um, I really like how this novel is tied into the tradition, not just of science fiction, but the sort of larger project of mostly Western philosophy and thought, which is cool. The more I get away from it, the more I'm bugged by gender things in this, and I'm kind of concerned about them. Uh, but we could talk about that more on a longer episode. I definitely think this is a solid, solid, solid Hugo pick. It's doing a lot of interesting things. It's building on a lot of great works. It's a really interesting work to read, and it's cerebrally exciting, which I think that kind of like cognitive excitement you get reading a book, feeling like you're kind of solving a puzzle, using lots of different things to figure it out. To me, that's one of the pleasures of reading science fiction. So, yeah, great book. Two months ago, Jake, you were wrong about gender being uh, misrepresented in this novel, and you still are. I'm I'm here to stop you. I don't know, man. It's uh, This is a conversation we'll have to circle back to, but... I think it's a fantastic work. I don't want to downplay it. I am 
I think there's possibly some really weird, deep, like heteronormativity and like cisnormativity going on in this book in ways that I don't think Palmer necessarily intended, but there's some, there's some weird stuff going on with the gender here, but it's, it's great to have as part of the conversation. So. It's a taboo topic in this book and it, uh, it is, it, it is at least very interestingly presented, but we're going to have to make it a taboo podcast, yeah. a taboo <laughs> issue on this podcast as well. I think so. So. Um, so yeah, moving on next on the list. Next on the list is The Obelisk Gate by N.K. Jemison. This is next on my list to read. I haven't gotten to it yet. Jake, I'm wondering what your impressions were of this book. Uh, yeah, so this is the sequel to a Hugo Award-winning novel, uh, The Fifth Season, which caused a lot of waves last year. That's I think right. A lot of people really like that. I really like that. This is a, it's a fun book. It's a powerful book. Um, I'm not normally into the idea of even nominating sequels for these kinds of awards, this one I get. Um, it's a powerful book. The so the fifth season and this book. It's the broken, the fractured Earth is the trilogy. It's going to be. It's set presumably on Earth, pretty far in the future, in this time where there are these frequently recurring natural disasters that all come from the Earth. They're all kind of like seismic disasters. Lots of tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanoes, related problems, and there are these people with this power to control basically earthquake events. Uh, mm. They're called origins. Okay. And the novel, the fifth season follows one of these people along a few different timelines um, as basically this possibly world-ending cataclysm has happened. And then she learns a lot about how the world works and lots of weird stuff going on. The Obelisk Gate picks up like literally right at the end. So it's like jump-in sequel. Really fantastic. Has some parts to it that I thought were fantastically well written and kind of moving and kind of powerful. There's this there's this scene where one of the origins, so kind of a, a persecuted minority, where this community is deciding whether or not to let them stay, and a really powerful origin basically comes in and says, No one is allowed to vote on this. Like you don't get to vote on who gets to be people. Like that's not something that's up for debate. It had a bunch of these moments like that that I really, really dug. That said, I don't know. It's got some odd weak points to it. It drops the M word. It, it starts calling things magic in the second book that it didn't in the first, hmm. which kind of weirded me out. Yeah, There's this way to read the fifth season where it's not fantastic at all, which it wasn't pitched that way. But when you went and read it, it was kind of like, oh, this is actually science fiction yeah. all the way. And then the second one's messing with that a bit. I think it's still possible to read it as science fiction, but it's less clear. In her previous book, uh, 100,000 Kingdoms, her prose was beautiful. Um, I remember so many passages and, and a lot of uh, emotional scenes. Uh, it sounds like she does a lot of that with this work. Too. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really good. It has some stylistic stuff that I think worked a lot better in the first one in terms of experimentation, some stuff with the second person voice that I don't think worked quite as well here, but still a super, super powerful work. Um, I'm glad to see it on the list. Not sure how it's going to do, but... Yeah, good book. Highly recommended. So then, speaking of sequels, and speaking of people who have also won Hugo Awards before, uh, once again, we have Sitchin Liu, a Chinese writer. Uh, his novel, Death's End, which is the last in a trilogy. Uh, the Three-Body Problem won the Hugo Award two years ago, three years ago? That's and, right, two years ago. And with this one, we've returned to American science fiction writer Ken Liu as the translator. Um, so I don't know the gist of this. I just finished reading the middle one, The Dark Forest, last night. I'm about to launch into this. Uh, Michael, tell me what Death's End is about and what you think about it. 
Well, Jake, I think if Neil deGrasse Tyson was on on Positron, I think he would he would probably vote for this work because this is uh, this book and actually this trilogy uh, has so many ideas going on. Um, it's a delight of sort of scientific inquiry. There's philosophy, psychology, sociology, military theory, game theory, computer science, astronomy. It basically is a potpourri of of the sciences pre- presented in sort of a very realistic near future way. So for people who haven't read these, what's the kind of basic conceit? What's the basic kind of gist of this trilogy? It's playing a bit with the Fermi paradox, which is... Um, you know, if there was intelligent life in the in our galaxy, wouldn't we have found it? Yeah, now? where is it? Where is everybody? That's right, and it, not to be not to be confused with the Furby paradox, which is very different. <laughs> right. But what's the kind of what's the uh, what's the main gist of this? Like, what's what's it about? Uh, well, it's uh, it's about uh, an alien race, the Trisolarans, who um, discover uh, through um, sort of the. A SETI type communication originating from Earth near the time of the Cultural Revolution. That the Cultural uh, Revolution, yeah, the nineteen sixties, uh, yeah, China. Okay, um, gotcha. It's uh, it basically details the sort of like realistic interstellar travel and interaction of this alien race with uh, with a fertile sort of ground for. Uh, alien invasion of right. Earth. They're coming to kill us all, right? That's, That's the right. Main plot? Okay. And there's some big ideas that are included here, like sulfons, which is basically an expansion of a proton uh, and etched uh, so that it's essentially there's uh, the trisolarans have the ability to uh, sort of observe just about any going on on, on Earth. And uh, other big concepts like uh, axioms of cosmic sociology, which is really sort of reminiscent of Harry Seldon and psychohistory from uh, uh, Isaac Asimov's Foundation novels. See, it's interesting because I was thinking of it more in terms of really pessimistic modern writers like maybe Peter Watts in Blind Sight, um, because it's kind of grim, at least in the first two. I haven't got to the last one. Oh, so. gosh. Death's End actually takes us to uh, grimmer territory oh, okay. than the first two. It seems like Death's End would be a happy thing if it were uh, yeah, <laughs> getting rid of death. But. Right. But uh, there's a lot of kind of expansion of time and space in uh, sta- like Olaf Stapleton sort of way as well. This is uh, really an incredible uh, sort of series of books. And, you know, this is the third in, in that group. Often third novels are a bit of a letdown because they do have to conclude uh, storylines. Uh, I think that's that's possibly true here. Okay. Um, the first two novels, I think, were uh, a little more worthy of the, of the nominee uh, or nomination than, than this final submission. Interesting. Cool. All right. So going down the list here. Um, next up, we have Charlie Jane Anders' All the Birds in the Sky, which uh, is also Nebula nominated, and it just won the Crawford Award um, at the International uh, Conference on Fantastic in the Arts. Um, I believe this is her first novel, yeah? It is. Uh, she's had a couple of other uh, stories, and right. I think she won the Hugo in either the novella or I, novelette category. I believe you're before. right. So All the Birds in the Sky is an interesting kind of mashup I think when we were talking about it before, I called it a hot mess in a complimentary way, <laughs> meaning it's it's a really cool thing, but it's got a, it's got a lot going on. It's this weird layered story. It's basically about witches versus mad scientists, 
and it's about a group. It's set pretty much contemporary, and it's about a group of witches and wizards and so forth, and a group of kind of Elon Musk-esque scientists who are both trying to save the world using their particular approaches, and they wind up fighting each other along the way. And of course, our central couple have been in love and fated to be together since they were children. Now they're on opposite sides of this magic versus robot war. So that's what it's about. Michael, what'd you think about it? Uh, well, Jake, I thought that, be honest. The, I thought that the uh, character characterization was a bit cliched. I mean, I, I guess you can imagine, um, you know, science versus witchcraft or uh, mad scientists and, and uh, witches and warlocks. Um, I, I thought that the characters were somewhat cliched and that the... The science was presented on the level of, say, Back to the Future. Yeah, that's, um, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. I thought that even the the witchcraft. I thought that the I had a hard time caring uh, deeply about the characters. I thought that they were pretty morally f- flawed, but that may make them more endearing to some readers, just not to me. Interesting. Yeah, I uh, I really enjoy this a lot. It's a mode of science fiction that I don't think I see done well very often, which is a very Douglas Adams-y, Terry Pratchett-esque kind of thing. It's very light and humorous in parts. It's kind of pushing together a fairly serious storyline with some really comedic parts, with a young adult coming-of-age novel, with some pretty deep concerns about the environment that are kind of the motivating force, even if they're not always in the foreground. It's got all these Canterbury references. I feel like Charlie Jane has actually said that a first draft of this was basically like a Canterbury novel, which is really mm. interesting to me. Interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's light. It's probably more on the fantasy end than actually science fiction, but you could say that about Doug Adams as well. That's right. Um, and I think, uh, you know, this could very well be uh, uh, easily uh, made into a screenplay. Oh, totally. I think that it, I, I can see this uh, directed by Fellini or Godard, uh, something like that. I, I get Satyricon... And French New Wave. Interesting. Kind of I was going to say like Whedon or someone like that. Like this like fast, snappy. <laughs> oh, Whedon's like, coming up soon. A lot of one-liners. But um, yeah, I don't know. Interesting book. I feel like it's going to be a fan favorite. I don't know if it's going to win, but um, Charlie Jane Anders has been such an important part of the larger community for a long time. And I think a book like this that pulls together so many different threads and styles is actually... I don't know, it's actually a cool representation to get from her. So I thought the novel was really redeemed in in, in the final pages. I thought that the um, the some of the, actually it was very meaningful to me. I think that there there was a way that the plot resolves that uh, I see sort of a glimmer of hope for this world and possibly even our own world oh, for cool. dealing with some problems yeah. in the future. Interesting. And yeah. I can't mention them by name because it would be a Spoilery. plot spoiler. Yeah, but we've talked about optimism versus pessimism. And even though it's a fairly dark book in some respects, yeah, it ends, it ends well. It does. All right. So next on our list, we have A Closed and Common Orbit by Becky Chambers. So this is another sequel. Um, it's kind of a loose sequel. It's a spinoff or a standalone or a companion kind of novel to The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, which she published a couple years ago. I believe it was self-published at first. Um, so in this Wayfair universe, it's kind of a gentle space opera. It's focused very much on kind of small adopted family crew dynamics. So it looks a lot like Star Trek or Firefly, kind of depending on how you look at it. And this one is about an AI learning to live in a humanoid body and kind of having some problems learning to do that. 
and also the mechanic, who is a minor character in the first novel, who is helping her to learn to do that. And it turns out that this mechanic, Pepper, she was raised by an AI when she was a child. So there's this kind of second plot about her reliving that and trying to figure out what happened to her caretaker. This book, Jake, has a terrific ensemble cast. Uh, I don't see the comparisons to Firefly as much as I do to sort of like Buffy in space. Okay. Um, I th- I think that the dialogue is quick and witty. It could have been written by Joss Whedon. Um, there's a lot going on in this novel that where superficially you might think like th- this is sort of um, a set of characters that are having problems with identity uh, uh, memory and, and other things, uh, and, and maybe even like just kind of teen angst, but it, it's much deeper than that. There's a lot of philosophy, uh, and it's, uh, dealt with, uh, in incredibly succinct ways by, by the author. Hmm. I really wanted to like this book and I really, really, really don't like this book. Is that right? Yeah. It, um, to me, I can forgive, I can forgive science fails. I can forgive certain kinds of writing fails. To me, there were too many running at the same time. The main the main problem for me, and I can see why a lot of people like this. You know, gentle is a word we've tossed around a lot, I think, with this book. And it has a lot of concern about inclusiveness. It has a lot of concern to show diversity in this very accepting way, which I think is very cool. But to me, this book completely lacked tension in any of the storylines. And I don't feel like Chambers really wanted her main character to be an AI. Doesn't seem interested in real otherness um, of an artificial intelligence at all. It's just a person in a body and we're pretending they're an AI. So for me, unfortunately, yeah, this, this novel just did not work for me. I wanted to like it. I can see why a lot of people like it. But yeah, it was, it was a dud for me. I, I enjoyed some of the sort of practical kind of working digressions on sentience um, memory. There's kind of a Cartesian dualism in in the main character. Yeah, there is, she, which she doesn't ca- make sense. She call she calls her physical self Kit. And, yeah, and that was fun. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's sort of like the the way we're all uh, hardwired. But I guess in in a in a AI, uh, it would be um, more apparent. Uh, there's there's just a, a lot going on in this novel, and it's written in kind of a I don't know, a folksy kind of like Southern California way. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> the author's from LA. Okay. And, all right. And has, has lived abroad, but uh, you can just kind of tell there's, there's a lot of sort of, uh, it could have, could have been uh, written at the bronze. In, okay. In yeah. And brought to you by the, the Sunnydale writers collective. Okay. Cool. <laughs> right. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we'll have to argue about this book more, but yeah. The last book on the list is Nine Fox Gambit by Yoon Ha Lee. Uh, this is uh, military science fiction. It's the biggest surprise on the list for me, Jake. Uh, it involves a, sort of a, a lot of military theory, uh, a young soldier who's uh, gifted at number theory, and a personality download, uh, and sort of a... Uh, there's a lot of religion involved, uh, kind of uh, a lot of mathematics, a lot of military theory uh, and it's kind of a, a big novel of ideas, um, and it's it's uh, really one of the one of the most amazing works I've I've read in, in the last couple of years. What did you think about it, Jake? Yeah, I mean, I really liked it. I, we saved it for last on our list because I know we were both 
really impressed with it, but we hadn't really talked about it yet on the podcast. Yeah, I thought it's really cool. It's interesting. The uh, the plot of this is really very simple. If you strip off everything else about it, it's about this big, powerful empire that has to go fight some heretics that are trying to break away. And in the midst of that, the general they send to fight it has this long-burning revenge thing that we slowly figure out. But the way it works is these exotic effects, and it feels a lot like fantasy. I think a lot of fantasy readers could just hop into this and not at all be, uh, you know, out to see. This, the effects that they make feel like magic rituals, and it creates these really surreal kind of violence. You know, these, uh, these bombs that turn people into carrion glass, and you can eat them and you get their memories. You know, these uh, amputation guns. Amputation guns, yeah. Gross. <laughs> the interesting word here is calendricals. Yes. Yeah, calendrical rot. You're going to know the word calendrical after you read this. So <laughs> there's this kind of consensus reality where literally the way the calendar and the clock work sort of make this local area... Uh, of consensus reality where these weird technologies can work. And then if a different group of people start using a different calendar, celebrating different holidays, having different festivities and beliefs, those effects stop working. That's right. And then those those groups of people are labeled heretics. And they sort of... it. it the science here is almost relativistic. It's kind of like Einstein, but it's not really explained. It's not explained at all. Um, yeah. And that's, to me... Kind of what I like most about it. I agree. But I have met at least half the people I've talked to who've read it hate it for that very reason. Um, I think it's still science fiction, but I think you could very easily make the case that it's definitely not science fiction, which is weird. It's a weird place to be in that. I'm super certain it's science fiction, but lots of people think it's space pagans with magic lasers. And that, I think, is also a totally defensible reading. At the end of the day, Jake, I don't think it matters. I, with the incredible world building... And um, just kind of the depth of uh, of plot to this thing, it, it's an amazing novel. It, it's I I really didn't care if it was science fiction or science fantasy. Interesting. And yet you you don't want a fantasy book to win the Hugo Award. You said earlier. So you know, there's it's it's the appearance of science. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that. Like it's almost like it felt to me like sort of Victorian adventurers, like working with science that they don't completely understand. Because hmm. a lot of these military uh, sort of like constructions sort of get out of control and and they're sort of unexpected effects. It's okay. like it's it's like Orson Scott Gard's Ender's Game on steroids. Okay, kind of. I can see that, yeah. One of the things I thought was interesting about it was that it seems like a very definitely gender neutral future to me. Um, that's right. In that's, a way that I don't feel about books on this list that are putatively about gender neutral societies like to like the lightning. It, this really feels like it's a society that doesn't actually care about gender. Another thing that I really enjoyed was the the sort of like impending servitor. There's kind of a, a robot sort of servant oh, yeah. class. It's, and it's like super in the background. That's right. And it, like, it's yeah. sort of like you can sort of tell that there's a, like a, a, a quiet revolution. A revolution. A quiet revolution. Very yeah. quiet, very polite revolution happening. Yeah. All of these things are so subtle. Yeah. And this this is possibly the most literary novel on the list. Hmm. And it's identical. I'll fight you. I'll fight you. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Great book. I really enjoyed Nine Fox a lot. I'm looking forward to reading the next one. Um, yeah. Calendrical rot. We will remember (laughs) calendrical rot.
that's our list. So we've got we've got six books. I'm looking down the list here. Um, some interesting things I think about Hugo's as a whole this year. So we have how many new books do we have? We have one. I think first time authors, first time novelists. We have three of them. We have three first time, and are the other three all sequels? Yes, they are. Yeah. Interesting. So we've got three first timers, three all sequels, and we have no white men on the list this year on the Hugos. Incredible diversity here yeah. on the short list for the for the novel category. I was trying to find uh, someone put up on on Twitter or Tumblr this list of kind of like benchmarks in Hugos over the years. Like first time a woman was nominated, first time a woman won, you know, first time a person of color was nominated, first time a person of color won. And it's pretty darn bleak until you get like towards almost to the 90s, really. Um, and as you know, the last 10 years or so have been really good. They've become a lot more inclusive and diverse. Um, to see a list like this. I think we're seeing an inflection point on a logarithmic curve. Yeah, here, totally. <laughs> um, I think it's interesting. Um, I think that that fills me with a lot of hope for the genre um, and that there are so many young writers on here. I mean, these are all fairly young writers. Usually, I feel like if you look at the Hugos as a whole, like through the years, they tend to go kind of like mostly to established mature writers with a few like kind of young rising stars. This is like all young rising stars, um, really, except for Jemison. I think it's hard to say that any of these people have are really like firmly cemented yet. And Jemison's still, you know, a very young writer and, and still just getting going. So Sisin Lee is, uh, is actually a very established writer in, China, in but, China, but yeah, as far right. as uh, from the West's perspective, he is brand new. Yeah. Uh, two years ago is, you know, very famously uh, the tran- first translated work to win the Hugo in the novel category. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting list. There's some very, very, very approachable books here and some books that are a lot harder to approach. I think All the Birds in the Sky and A Closed and Common Orbit and probably The Obelisk Gate um, are, I think, pretty easy for people of a lot of different reading backgrounds to jump in and enjoy. But then we have, you know, Nine Fox Gambit, which has these really interesting stylistic controls. Two Like the Lightning, which is just dense as a neutron star and full of ideas and really weird stylistic effects. Um, it's interesting to see those kind of juxtapositions going on on the same short list. What do you think about this list overall, Michael? What jumps out at you? Well, the, the three new authors on this list are, are the, the most remarkable uh, aspect to to this shortlist for me. In fact, it's difficult for me to actually rank them. And my ballot will probably reflect this, that uh, it's I'm not really sure how to rank them first to third. But um, as we explained earlier in the podcast, um, it all, often doesn't matter uh, which one gets the highest rank. Uh, the fact that I will probably assign each of the three new authors a number mm. um, is a vote uh, for each of them. Yeah. Uh, and they're all very deserving. Yeah. No, it's it's a really interesting list. So we have been avoiding arguing about genre definitions, and we're not going to get into it too big. But something I will point as I look down this list is that in all honesty, I think only Death's End and A Closed and Common Orbit would I die on the hill of them being science fiction for sure, right? You can make the strong argument that Two Like the Lightning isn't solidly science fiction because it includes extremely supernatural, extremely magical elements. Um, The Obelisk Gate might be epic fantasy. It drops the word magic for the powers uh, that the Origins are using. All the Birds in the Sky has magic in it. It's got witches and wizards, and they're using real magic for sure. It's not 
code word for science. And then Nine Fucks Gambit, like we said, I enjoy the reading that it's all science fiction and it's, uh, you know, it's extremely advanced technology that looks like magic to us. But I think you can also make the really strong case that no, it's, it's magic in space. So it only leaves us with two that are definitely science fiction, which is interesting. And you seem to have thoughts about that, Michael, and I want to know what they are. <laughs> well, I think the it's a it's a nice spectrum when you look at them uh, sort of a, as a, a a continuum of the state of science fiction today, or at least the the um, most important novels uh, for the World Science Fiction Convention. I think I think it it presents just a, a wonderful continuum. Uh, there's no st- sort of by on the flip side of the coin there's no staunchly fantasy work here right. either so it, each each uh, of the books present kind of a hybrid between uh with the notable exceptions of death's end and um a closed and common orbit yeah right sure. the, the, yeah. they they all uh you know, are are sort of inclusive of both uh, science fiction and fantasy elements. Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of points the way the genre is spreading. Not just, I mean, we're we're excited that there are you know so many diverse authors on here, but besides that kind of diversity, that the genre itself is moving in different directions and kind of exploring what the boundaries of the field actually are. Um, so I, I think that's interesting. Um, I think that's that's pretty cool. Great, uh, great list. I have not. I haven't decided how I'm going to rank these. Um, mm-hmm. It's tough for me. I really think, you know what? I'm going to go. Th- here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go through and pitch all of them as the winner because <laughs> I think too. Like the lightning is this groundbreaking, dense, extremely referential, very right. thoughtful. It's placing itself on a continuum. All this stuff is behind it. It's thinking of all the stuff that could be coming ahead of it, both in the real world and within the genre. I think that's fantastic. I think it's a masterwork. Right. It um, is well-placed on the list. Yeah. I mean, Obelisk Gate, um, I think, is a really powerful work. Uh, I think in that sense, in many ways, I think it's the most emotionally and kind of ethically powerful book on the list. I enjoyed uh, Becky Chambers' uh, prose more than you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that uh, Yoon Ha Lee and Ada Palmer are definite voices to look for in the future. In fact, uh, they've both got sequels coming out soon, and I hope that they can keep keep up this quality of work. Yeah. I wanted to go through and like dig some data on the awards, and then I ran out of time. But I was I was wondering how many times sequels have been nominated to this degree. Um, you know, half the books on this list are not the first one, uh, which for some of these I think it doesn't matter that much. Close and Common Orbit you can read by itself, or you can read both of them. They're both pretty quick reads. But like for Death's End, like if someone's coming in and this is their first Hugo that they're voting for and they want to take it seriously, that's a lot of pages you have to read just to get into this. I think that uh, you know traditionally a lot of I think it's uh, Citadel of the Autark, the um, Gene Wolfe novel, the fourth in his book oh, of the right, New Sun, yeah. uh-huh. that uh, finally came home with uh, I believe it was a Hugo and mm-hmm. possibly a Nebula, uh, whereas the first three novels were ignored largely. Uh, also uh, Blue Mars. Uh, oh, yeah. One Hugo right. and, and uh, possibly the no- more notable works before right. uh, were missed, and so I, th- I think it it's a credit to the uh, science fiction fandom mm-hmm. that uh, you know first time novelists are being recognized and and notable sequels, um, you know both Sissian Liu 
and N.K. Jemison have won Hugo's before. Right. So uh, these are just, uh, you know, sequels to those novels. Yeah, And, it's and deservedly uh, on, on our short list. Yeah, I, I know. That's cool. Especially ranked against these new writers and these first-time novels and the fact that they're trying out the series award. Uh, I like that they're... I like that the awards right now... And, you know, the awards, awards are weird, but awards are kind of a way that fandom talks about stuff to itself. And to me, that shows that both we're really interested in the new stuff coming in, but we're also interested in these continuing traditions and continuing series. So, yeah, that's kind of cool. I mean, like, final wrap-up thoughts on the Hugos? Well, uh... Give us something brilliant, Michael, <laughs> so we can end this section. Right. Uh, well, I, I think the the most notable thing is that there are uh, very few voting block entries on the shortlist this year. I was totally skeptical of the E Pluribus Hugo thing, which is, I mentioned this big mathy thing they did to try to break the block voting. It apparently worked. Um, either it worked or some of the block voting fizzled. Uh, we'll the, probably know later. But yeah. this is a Worldcon that's on European soil. Right. So there are more European voters. In, oh, right, just because they're attending. So I, oh, I don't know if that has uh, yeah. contributed to the, you know, the appearance of the, of the shortlist. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so this is going to be given August. What's the date on this? Uh, Mid-August. Mid-August, yeah, and it's going to be in Helsinki. You're going to be there. That's right. It's um, going to be fantastic. Yeah, so very exciting. Also, you know, I forgot to mention earlier, the Nebulas are this weekend. So by the time this podcast is out there in the world, at least three of these books will have had a chance to win a Nebula. So that's kind of cool. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, that's our show. Thanks for listening. Next time, we'll be talking about some of the highlights from Wisconsin and our cycling adventures getting there. Um, and we may be in touch on some of the other Hugo categories as well. If you like our show, please consider leaving us a rating, comment, or review wherever you listen. It really helps spread the word, especially on iTunes. We'd appreciate it. Our events reader this time was Chelsea Fidiment from Unreal. Unreal is a fiction-focused, genre-friendly, open mic that meets at Shubas Tavern in Lakeview. Find out more at facebook.com slash unrealchicago. Thanks to the New Millennium Theatre Company and Otherworld Theatre for inviting us to their productions. New Millennium's The Incredible Hank is playing through June 24th at the Royal George Theatre. You can find ticket info and more at nmtchicago.org. Otherworld's Theatre's The Rogue Aviator is playing through June 10th at the New Straw Dog Theatre. Ticket info and more at otherworldtheatre.org. And that's theater with an R-E. As always, big thanks to Pelafina for generously providing all of our music. You can find out about their upcoming shows at facebook.com slash Band. And you can listen to all of their tunes at pelafina.bandcamp.com and pay whatever you want for downloads. If you'd like to find out about science fiction and fantasy book clubs, check out our webpage at positronchicago.com. We've got a constantly updated events calendar, meeting notes, book reviews, and more. Questions, comments, want to be on the show? Find us on Facebook or Twitter, or drop us a line at PositronChicago at gmail.com. Hey, also, congratulations to Charlie Jane Anders for winning the Nebula Award for Best Novel for All the Birds in the Sky. Also, congratulations to Amala Motar. She won the Best Short Story from the Nebulas. 
for Seasons of Glass and Iron, which the Galactic just discussed. And we're looking forward to hearing her talk at WizCon. All right. Thanks, readers. Take care. Don't wait for